Good morning once again. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Matthew, chapter 3. We have uh, been studying the gospel of Matthew on Sunday morning here at Calvary. And uh, this morning we find ourselves at the beginning of chapter 3. And uh, let's just read that first verse. Where Matthew says, In those days, John the Baptist came, preaching in the wilderness of Judea. So, as soon as chapter 3 begins, we are immediately introduced to this colorful, if not slightly enigmatic character known as John the Baptist. Uh, He just seems to come out of nowhere. All of a sudden, he's on the scene, bursts onto the scene with a message from God. How do we know that he was a messenger from God or a spokesman for God? Because when John the Apostle wrote his gospel, he opened up with these words, There was a man sent from God whose name was John. And he's speaking of John the Baptist there. He goes on to say, this man came for a witness, to bear witness of the light, the light would be Christ, that all through him might believe. So John the Baptist was sent from God with a message. That meant John was a prophet. A prophet was somebody who spoke on behalf of God. In fact, Jesus in Matthew 11 and Luke 7 tells us that John was the greatest prophet that ever lived. Now, when we get to chapter 11, we'll talk a little bit about that. But John was the greatest prophet who ever lived. And we read in verse 1 that John came preaching in those days. In those days. Now, as we've already pointed out in this study, those were dark days spiritually and morally for the world. At that time, the pagan world had lowered itself so deep into moral and spiritual filth that even the pagans were crying out against the conditions uh, around them. Can you imagine that? When you get so far into sin, so far into darkness, that even pagans are crying out that we need to change some things here. But prior to John's appearance, it was also dark days for the Jewish people. For 400 years, there was no prophet in Israel saying, thus says the Lord. After Malachi finished his prophetic ministry, heaven went silent. God stopped broadcasting, you might say. That silence was so deafening to the Jews. It's so broke their hearts because they truly believed that God had forsaken them. Why isn't God speaking to us anymore? He must have forsaken his people. 400 years of silence, and then all of a sudden, a voice crying out in the wilderness. The silence was broken, and God once again began to speak. And he used this character named John the Baptist to be his spokesman. Who was this guy? Why was he so important to the ministry of Jesus? You know, I think a lot of people kind of write John off as, you know, if you watch these biblical movies, right, they always portray John as this, you know, psychotic goofball out in the wilderness yelling and screaming at rocks and, and the snakes and everybody else, you, can, you know, listen to him. John was not a kook, all right? We're going to talk about that a little later. John was a very important individual to the ministry of Jesus Christ. We'll look at that as we go. First of all, who was John? Let's look at John the man. What do the scriptures say about John himself? Well, first of all, the scriptures say that John was a voice crying. He was a voice crying. In Matthew 3, verse 3, we read, For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness 
Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. Why was John crying out in the wilderness? Well, because in the wilderness, people don't hear so well, just like today. And I'm talking about the condition we see ourselves in. We are living in a spiritual and moral wilderness. I don't have to tell you guys, just like the book of Judges, which was a, one of the blackest periods in Israel's history. And over and over again, we see the phrase in that book that characterizes why it was so black uh, and desperate, morally and spiritually. It says, because there was no king in Israel, therefore everyone did whatever seemed right in their own eyes. There is no king in Israel. There is no king in America. What do I mean? King Jesus is not on the throne of people's hearts and lives. Even in the church, we have church people that go to church, but really Jesus Christ is not really the king over their lives. And so because of it, we are living at a time when everybody seems to be doing whatever seems right in their own eyes. In fact, it's also a time that, uh, like Isaiah characterized in his book, where he said, just before judgment falls, we have this inversion in any society. People begin to call good evil and evil good. And we're seeing it today. And because people are so jaded by sin and so dull of hearing to the word of God, we are living in a day, just like in John's day, where you know speaking in soft, gentle tones is probably not going to get their attention. C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Problem of Pain, made a classic statement. He said, and I quote, God whispers in our pleasures, but he shouts in our pain. He said, it is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. And I believe as we look at our nation and we see what is happening, we see the calamities, we see the natural disasters, we see the enemy attacks, we see all these things happening. It's God shouting to us in our adversity, trying to get our attention because we become dull of hearing. This is the way God always works when people turn their backs on him and begin to get more and more into sin and rebellion and their hearts become harder and their ears become duller. God has got to raise his voice and he does it through adversity. And he also calls people, his ministers, his preachers, to begin to preach loudly, not necessarily volume wise, but to cut it straight. To stop tipping around issues, you know, tiptoeing around the issues. To say it straight, to speak the truth in love, but to speak the truth. Don't water it down. Don't make it palatable for people that don't really want to hear the truth. Say it like it is. And I believe that God is raising up a new generation of John the Baptist. I have seen them. My son, I think, is one of them. All over this country, there are young people, interesting, who are taking to the streets and doing street evangelism. And if you talk to them, their message is not God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Although God, they do preach God's love, don't get me wrong. The message is more, more along these lines. Flee the wrath to come. God's judgment is coming. He loves you and he sent his son to die for you that you would not have to go to hell. But his judgment is coming. Flee the wrath to come. Because when people get dull of hearing when they're in the wilderness, they don't hear so good. You've got to be a voice crying. But if you're a voice crying in these dark days, remember this. You've got to have a compassionate heart. And I think that's one of the reasons that John was a voice crying out in the wilderness. It spoke of concern, right? I think John was definitely concerned about the people of his generation. He knew judgment was coming, so there was a sense of urgency in his voice. We'll talk about that more next time. So John, first of all, was a voice crying. 
Secondly, he was a finger pointing. As John was conducting his ministry, at one point, John records in his first chapter of his gospel, verse 29, the next day, John the Baptist saw Jesus coming toward him. And he said to his disciples, to John's disciples, he said, behold, pointing to Jesus, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. See, John got people's attention. I mean, all of a sudden, here's this character in the wilderness. And he's crying out, repent. Get your life right with God. Well, people started to go out to see him. He was kind of a, an attraction, you might say. But see, even though people were attracted to John, he never let them keep the focus on him. As soon as he attracted them, he immediately pointed them to Jesus. He was a finger pointing. Not like today with so many of these TV evangelists and preachers. They're a finger pointing, all right, like this. Everyone look at me. They become the center of it. They want to be the focus of attention. They become the hero of all their stories. Not John. John was a humble man. When they came to him one day after Jesus started his public ministry, and many were going to Jesus, no longer coming to John. And they came to, to John, some of his the leaders and, and his disciples, and said, John, doesn't it bother you that people are all flocking to Jesus now, and they're not coming to you anymore? He says, no, didn't I tell you that he must increase and I must decrease? I told you I wasn't the bridegroom. I'm just the friend of the bridegroom. It's my responsibility to focus attention on the bridegroom. He must increase, I must decrease. God help us, we need more preachers like John today. So he was a voice crying. Secondly, he was a finger pointing. And thirdly, he was a lamp burning. Jesus said this himself about John. Jesus said in John 5, verse 35, that John the Baptist was the burning and shining lamp, and you were willing for a time to rejoice in his light. Jesus said of John that he was a burning and shining lamp. That speaks of John's life being a witness, a life that was burning brightly for God. John didn't hide his faith. I mean, he was out in the wilderness, but he wasn't hiding out in the wilderness. He was openly proclaiming his faith, openly conducting his ministry. John was not a closet believer like so many today. Got to hide out. I don't want people to know I'm a Christian. I don't want boss to know because, goodness, he'll think I'm weird and I won't get the promotion or whatever. John was not a closet Christian. John lived his life openly and publicly for God, and everyone knew where John stood. And I hope you realize as we move on from here, but let me just say this before we do. God wants you to be a voice crying and a finger pointing, right? He wants you to be those that are crying out in the darkness and the wilderness of these days that we're living in, crying out, getting people's attention, and pointing them to Jesus. But you can't be a voice crying and a finger pointing if you're not a lamp burning. You understand that? If you're not letting your light shine, if you're out there, you know, talking about Jesus and pointing people to Jesus and inviting people to come to church, but you are not living yourself as a light in the darkness, everything else is worthless. And no matter how much you point to Jesus, you know what people are going to say to you about you? You're a hypocrite. John was not a hypocrite. That's why his ministry was effective when he cried out for people to come to Christ and pointed them to Jesus because he was living what he, what he preached. We have to be. God wants us to be voices crying in the wilderness. 
bringing people to Jesus, pointing them to Jesus. But we have to be a lamp burning. We have to be a light that's shining too. We can't, you know, preach one thing and live another way. That, that'll just basically destroy your ministry. All right. We've looked at the man. What about his message? What about his message? Well, again, verse 1, In those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, here's his message, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. His message was simple. Really has two parts to it, but it's really all one message, right? Let me break it down for you. First of all, he preached repentance. Repentance. What is repentance? Well, the Greek word, as we've said many times, is metanoia. It comes from actually two words that literally mean to have a change of mind. But a change of mind that will eventually lead to a change of direction, a change of action. Very important point. Biblical repentance is not worldly regret. Paul makes this point very clear in 2 Corinthians 7. He says, worldly regret or worldly sorrow leads to death. But godly sorrow leads to true repentance, which means change. I mean, every criminal in jail today regrets things. Mostly they regret they got caught, but they don't really regret uh, what they've done necessarily. But true repentance is more than just feeling sorry for what you've done. It brings it before God and says, God, I was wrong, and I want to repent I want to turn from this. I don't want to live this way anymore. So repentance is all about changing course, changing direction. Is repentance important? Yeah, in fact, take your Bibles, okay? I want to look at these just briefly. Do you realize that repent was the first word out of John the Baptist's mouth? We just saw that here in verse 2, didn't we? It was the first word out of Jesus' mouth when he began his public ministry. Turn to Mark, or excuse me, Matthew 4. I just want to show you these quickly so you know what I'm talking about. In Matthew 4, Jesus begins his public ministry. And listen to what it says here in verse 17. From that time, Jesus began to preach and to say what? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The word repent was the first word out of the apostles' mouths when they preached. Turn to Mark chapter 6. We read in verse 7. And he, Jesus, called the twelve to himself and began to send them out two by two and gave them power over unclean spirits. So they were sent out now to preach the gospel. Verse 12. So they went out and preached that people should, what? Repent. And they cast out many demons and so on. Very important. When the church began, when the church began in Acts chapter 2, remember how on the day of Pentecost that the Spirit of God came upon the disciples in the upper room in the form of a mighty rushing wind and cloven tongues of fire were above each of their heads and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And Peter gets up because there were Jews from all over the known world in town for the Feast of Pentecost, a major Jewish feast. And they all heard this rushing, mighty rushing wind noise. And they followed it, and it seemed to be located right where the disciples were staying. So a big crowd gathered outside. And Peter comes out, and he preaches the first spirit-filled message of the church age. The church has just started. And after Peter, at Acts chapter 2, lays out the gospel presentation. The people responded in verse 37 of Acts chapter 2. 
Now, when they heard this, Peter's message, the gospel, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent, and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, and so on. Very important. You say, yeah, but Paul didn't start off his ministry with the word repent, really. Well, turn to Acts 26. I know that Paul was very much a key apostle, probably the most important apostle of the church age. We don't know. But in Acts chapter 26, Paul is recounting his ministry for King Agrippa. And at one point, after he talk, gives his testimony, how he was called into ministry, on verse 19, it says, Therefore, King Agrippa, Paul said, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. Jesus appeared to him and called him into ministry, but de declared first to those in Damascus and in Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea and then to the Gentiles that they should repent, turn to God, and do works befitting of repentance. The very thing that John is going to say to a group of would-be disciples next time we study this. Look, repentance is the first step before a person can believe the gospel. Jesus said this in Mark 1 verse 15. He said, repent and believe the gospel. Well, think about that for a moment. If repentance means to turn around and start going in the opposite direction, how could you not tell people to repent if they're going to receive Christ? I mean, that doesn't even make sense. They're going away from God. That's what we all were doing before we became Christians. You know, even though we went to church, and no, not me, I was going to church every week. Look, you can be religious and still be lost. And people are going in a direction, for the most part, away from what God has said, away from God. Repentance is where they begin to understand that they're going in the wrong direction. They begin to have a change of mind. All of a sudden, all those people that they work with and those Christians in their families who have been telling them about Jesus and they've been writing them off as dingbats and goofballs, you know, you know ah, you're just nuts, you know, you're out there. And all of a sudden, at one point, God begins to work and suddenly, wait, wait a minute. I don't know, their lives have really seemed to be changing. Mine isn't doing so well. God begins to slowly bring about a change of mind. And finally, they realize they're going in the wrong direction. And they want to come to Christ, which means they've got to turn, turn around. That's why repentance has to be the first word of the gospel. But see, the church is wanting to soften the offense of the gospel. Remember what the Bible says? The gospel is offensive in and of itself. I, I should never share it in an offensive way. But the gospel offends. Why? Because it tells people we're lost sinners who need a savior. People don't like to hear that. I'm, not a, I'm a good person. Who told you that? God didn't tell you that. God told us we were all sinners lost on our way to hell. But so the church today, wanting to fill seats, wanting to fill up the building, wanting to not offend because we've got bills to pay, we need people's money and offerings, and so we they want to soften the gospel. So here's how they do it. Turn to Revelation 20, or excuse me, Revelation 3. Verse 20. Here's the common, and maybe some of you have fallen into this, and you know what, this is not to kind of criticize or condemn you, just to kind of inform you. 
Here is the classic modern day presentation of the gospel. I'll just give it to you. Verse 20. Not always exactly this way, but this is the general gist of it. People say, you need Jesus. You know, you need Jesus. Behold, Jesus said, I stand at the door of your heart and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens that door and comes to me, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. So here's the presentation. God loves you, has a wonderful plan for your life. Jesus is knocking on the door of your heart. Just open up and let him in. And he'll never leave you nor forsake you. Well, that's essentially true. But you left out something very important. Before the word behold in verse 20, what do you see? A space. Before the space, you see a period. And before the period, you see the word what? Repent. That's a kind of an important thing to leave out, don't you think? you got to turn. See, if you don't include that in the message, you give people the impression they can go on living any way they want. Because God loves me. All I need is to open my heart to Jesus, you know? And I'm hearing more and more of that kind of presentation in the church today, and it really is not consistent with what the Bible teaches about the gospel. So John preached repentance, secondly, because the kingdom of heaven was at hand. The kingdom of heaven is a reference to the rule of heaven over the earth. What does that mean? Well, I don't have time to really develop this. We have done this uh, in the past. But when God made this world, made Adam and Eve, he gave them dominion over the earth. They were God's creation. God said, it is good. He breathed into man the breath of God. Man became a living soul. Man was in subjection to God. God was the author of creation. And so at that point, the world was under the control, the dominion of the Lord. But when Adam and Eve sinned against God and obeyed the devil, they turned control of this world over to Satan. That's why he is called the God of this world. Because he is in control of this world system. Don't get me wrong. God is above everything. God is in total control. But God has to honor the choices that we make. Otherwise, he would force us to be robots. God doesn't want robots. He wants people who will love him of their own free will, which is manifested through obedience to what he has said. So when Adam and Eve of their own free will chose to disobey God and turn the world over to Satan, God honored that. And now the devil became the God of this world. Jesus did not dispute that when the devil took him up to a high mountain at one point, showed him all the kingdoms of the earth in a moment's time, and says, all these belong to me. I can give them to whomever I will. I'll give them to you if you just bow down and worship me. Jesus did not contest that. He did not challenge that. He didn't say, Satan, you're a liar. He knew that Satan was the God of this world. Now, the kingdom of heaven is a reference to that time when God is going to take control back of this world system. And he's going to do it ultimately when Jesus Christ comes back to establish his kingdom on the earth, right? That's a millennial kingdom promise. Here's the thing, though. John preached the kingdom of heaven is what? Is at hand or is present? See, John didn't see this as something yet future, millennial kingdom stuff. He saw this as happening right then and there. Well, certainly Jesus came with the offer of the kingdom. And we'll spend more time on this as we progress in Matthew's gospel because he devotes three major sections in his gospel to the kingdom. 
uh, the Sermon on the Mount, which we're coming to quick, uh, soon, chapters 5 through 7, the uh, seven kingdom parables in Matthew 13, and then, of course, the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24 and 5. So those are three major discourses that deal with the kingdom. We'll, you'll have all you need to know, all you probably want to know about the kingdom by the time we're done with those. But just up until this point, understand something. Jesus Christ came the first time to bring the kingdom. Did the Jewish leadership receive the kingdom? No, they rejected the king, didn't they? He presented himself on Palm Sunday. His disciples were yelling, save now, save now, right? But the chief priests, scribes, and so on, they rejected Jesus and had him crucified. Jesus, of course, knew that was going to happen. God knew that was going to happen. In fact, at one point, the Jews kept rejecting him, Jewish leadership. He began to turn to the Gentiles. See, the offer of the kingdom went from a public offering of a worldwide kingdom to now a personal offering that if anybody would receive the king into their heart by faith, he would sit down on the throne of their heart and the kingdom would come in them. It's called the mystery form of the kingdom. Again, we'll talk about this more when we get to these discourses. But didn't Jesus say in Luke 17, verse 21... For indeed, the kingdom of God is within you or in your midst. See, the kingdom is anywhere where the king reigns. Does the king reign in our hearts as Christians? That's right. That's why when you gave your heart to Christ, the kingdom came inside you. And you are living a little preview of the coming kingdom. See, when Jesus comes back to the earth to set up his kingdom, there's going to be peace. There's going to be joy. There's going to be fruitfulness. There's going to be blessing. Check your heart. Since you've gotten saved, doesn't that characterize your heart? He has given you joy. He has given you peace. He has brought fruitfulness into your life, purpose, and so on. Blessing, right? We are living the kingdom right now. All we're doing is waiting for God to, you know, bring it outwardly. It's already come into our hearts by faith. All right, well, that was John's message. We looked at the man and his message. How about his ministry? And we'll only take the first two of this today. We'll save the last one for next week. What about the ministry of John? Well, let's read again, starting in verse 1. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. That comes out of Isaiah 40, verse 3. The ministry of John the Baptist, and by the way, I just need to say this. Baptist is not his denominational affiliation. I had a guy say to me one time that the Baptists were the first denomination in the Christian church. I'm like, what do you mean? John the Baptist, he said. Are you kidding me? No, this is, he's not John the Baptist, John the Lutheran, John the Methodist. He's John the Baptizer. That's the idea. Okay. Wow. I mean, all right. But the ministry of John the baptizer was essentially threefold. Preparation, separation, and confrontation. Preparation, separation, and confrontation. And we'll look at that third one next time. First of all, preparation. Let me read this again, but read it out of Luke's gospel, because he gives us a little more. In Luke chapter 3, verse 4 through verse 6, we read, As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, saying... The voice of one crying in the wilderness, 
prepare, that's where I get the word preparation, that's John's ministry, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill brought low. The crooked places shall be made straight and the rough ways smooth. Verse 6, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Now, that last part indicates that the ultimate fulfillment of that prophecy in Isaiah was a kingdom fulfillment. See, when Jesus Christ comes back, he's going to rule over the face of the whole earth from Jerusalem, right? The whole earth is going to see every, all flesh, every person will see the salvation of God. The Bible tells us, I think it was Isaiah who said, in those days you won't have to say to your neighbor, hey, come and know the Lord. For everyone's going to know me from the greatest to the least. Everyone's going to know who the Lord is. You're not going to have to say, oh, have you ever heard of Jesus? Everyone's going to know about Jesus. Everybody is going to know the Lord. Because the knowledge of the Lord is going to fill the earth like the waters of the sea cover the earth right now, the Bible says. That's kingdom age stuff, millennial kingdom stuff. But John is telling us through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit or Matthew that there is a, was a short-term partial fulfillment of that. And that was John's ministry. John's ministry. You see, it was very well known in those days. Whenever a king was to visit an area of his kingdom, he would send a servant out several weeks or even several months in advance of his coming to tell people that were living in that area to fix the roads, get things ready, the king is coming, and we don't want anything hindering the king's coming. And so the valleys would be filled in, high places would be leveled off, crooked parts would be made straight, and rough spots would be made smooth. Also, yards would be cleaned up, fences would be mended, right? The heralds would go through, get, the, get that junk off the lawn. Get those junk cars out of there, right? Uh, you know, paint those fences, man. Fix it. The king's coming. You don't want him to see your, your neighborhood looking like this. See, whenever a king was coming to visit an area, there was just a lot of preparation that had to be done prior to his coming. That's why a herald would always precede the coming of the king. When it says in verse 1 that John came preaching, right? Preaching, the Greek word is a word that primarily means to herald. To herald. See, every king had a herald. Jesus Christ is the king of kings, not just the king of the Jews. So he had a herald as well. And that's why Matthew in verse 3 is quoting from Isaiah 40, verse 3, and applying it to John's ministry as he proclaimed or heralded the coming of the king of Israel, Jesus Christ. Only, listen, John wasn't referring to outward cleansing of yards and houses, but the inward preparation of the heart through repentance. So his ministry was one of preparation. Secondly, we'll end with this, it was also one of separation. Separation. John lived a life of separation from the world. Again, he was a voice crying where? In the wilderness. Now, look, I realize from a practical standpoint the reason that John was in the wilderness was because he was down by the Jordan River baptizing. Okay, I understand that. The Jordan was not in the big city. It was in the wilderness, so John had to be down there. But I believe the spiritual lesson the Holy Spirit wants to teach us here is that if we're going to call people, and that's what salvation is, by the way, it's calling people to separate themselves from the world and all of its sins and enticements to devote their lives fully to God. If we're going to call people to live separate lives from the world, guess what? We had better be living separated lives ourselves. 
Otherwise, we're nothing but hypocrites. And let me tell you something, hypocrisy will neutralize your ministry. Again, we've all seen characters on TV who talk a good talk, don't they? Talk about Jesus. All the sacrifices they've made for Jesus. Oh, how important it is that we sacrifice for Jesus and live separated lives for Jesus. And so their message resonates with uh, a lot of folks, and you see these little old widows and widowers on fixed income sending their last $10 from their Social Security check to the preacher because they believe in this man. He's a man of God. Then you see an expose on this character, and he's living in a, a, a palatial mansion, driving several fancy cars and living high off the hog. He's a hypocrite. And we don't listen to hypocrites. We... We know that you can't trust a hypocrite. Somebody who doesn't live what they preach is not worth listening to or following. John was not that way. John lived a life of separation. And so are we to do that. Look, as Christians, we live in the world, but we are not to be a part of the world. No, we're not to live monastic lives holed up in some monastery somewhere. We're to be out there with people. Jesus was out there with people. He went where the unbelievers were. He showed them love and all, but he never became one of them, right? He was never swept up into their lifestyle. He remained separate while still living among them. We have to remain separate in our hearts while still living in this world. Hey, look, God has put us in this world, right? We have to live in this world. We can't help but living in this world, but we can sure help and keep the world from living in us. And that's really the idea here. And so this means that we not only live separated lives, but we also live simple lives. In verse 4, it says, And John was clothed in camel's hair, with a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. And I hope he dipped the locusts in the wild honey, because that's the only way I'd eat those things. <laughs> you better dip them in chocolate sauce or something. I'm not eating them. Oh, come on, he couldn't. He really wasn't eating real locusts, was he? Yeah. I mean, if you go to the book of Leviticus, locusts were actually clean food. They were permitted. The Jews could eat locusts. And, of course, wild honey was abundant in Israel, especially in those wilderness regions. But John came as a prophet. He came dressed as a prophet. He came living an aesthetic life as a prophet. Reminds me of Elijah, really. And as a prophet of God, he lived a simple life because he didn't want any of the enticements of the world to distract him and take him away from his focus, which was doing what the Lord had called him to do. You know, when people read this about John, you know, that he was, uh, you know, wearing camel's hair clothing and eating wild honey and or, uh, eating locusts and wild honey, uh, they often make the statement, well, John was colorful. He was a colorful guy. You know, that's a euphemism. That's code for kooky or weird. It was kooky. Hey, look, I don't think John was kooky. I think John was committed. I think John was really committed to his God. And he manifested that commitment by remaining separate from the world. And look, John's simple and separated lifestyle were in themselves a constant rebuke to the worldly, self-indulgent lifestyles of those religious leaders in Jerusalem, like the scribes, the Pharisees, the chief priests, the Sadducees, who they used religion to line their pockets to make money off of people, but they really weren't in it for the love of God. John 
wanted to stand separate from all of that hypocrisy. Now, you say, well, are you saying that I got to live like John? I mean, tell me, is that where this is going? And you want me to, to, to walk around in some kind of a modified Tarzan outfit, eating bugs? Because if that's where you're going with this. No, listen, calm down. I don't think John was encouraging that exact lifestyle. Look, what I want impressed on my heart is John's heart, not necessarily everything he lived and did. Because I don't live 2,000 years ago, and neither do you. I want this man's heart, okay? If not his wardrobe and his dietary thing. But I, I want his heart, all right? And look, I do think John was unique. John had a unique ministry. I don't believe God is calling all of us to that kind of a lifestyle. I know he isn't. Because John had a very unique ministry in a very dark time, and it was going to require constant vigilance. He had no family. You couldn't drag a family into the life John was living. Too much persecution, too much hardship. John had to be totally focused on the ministry God was calling him into, and because he was chosen to be the herald of the king. In fact, he was called to that ministry even before he was conceived. Last scripture. Turn to um, Luke 1. You remember the story here. Zacharias and Elizabeth were elderly at this time. Zacharias was a priest. For many years they had prayed for a son. Elizabeth was barren. And so now, I don't know, maybe they're in their middle 70s, late 70s, who knows. But they're elderly. And one day it's Zacharias' turn to be in the temple burning incense to the Lord. While he's there, an angel, verse 13, appears to him and says, Do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your prayer is heard. doesn't say has been heard. Your prayer is heard. You know what? Whenever you pray to God, they ascend up into heaven and stay in the active box. They never just disintegrate. Okay? So whatever you're praying, know this. It's ascended to the throne of God and still in the active box. I think that they had probably stopped praying for a child 40 years earlier. But the angel says, your prayer is heard. And your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son. And you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness. And many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. He will also be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. He will also go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. What the angel is saying to Zacharias and Elizabeth is that John was going to be a Nazarite from birth. What is a Nazarite? Well, this week you can look it up in Numbers chapter 6, which gives a detailed ex explanation of what a Nazarite was all about. The gist of it was when a person took a Nazarite vow, and Josephus, the Jewish historian, tells us the vow oft, uh, most often lasted for 30 days. John was a Nazarite, though, called by God as one for life. But normally it was a 30-day vow. And when you entered into the vow of a Nazarite, you didn't cut your hair. You abstained from all alcoholic beverages, especially anything associated with the grapes. With grapes. You couldn't even drink grape juice, eat grape uh, leaves, or, or grape seeds. You would abstain from all of that. Also, you had to avoid contact with any dead bodies. 
And as I said, this was a 30-day vow usually. But here, God calls John the Baptist to be a Nazarite for life. A Nazarite, or the um, lifestyle of a Nazarite, manifested the highest level of spiritual devotion. The highest level of spiritual devotion. In that regard, I think that all of us should consider ourselves Nazarites for life. Because our lives should reflect the highest level of spiritual devotion to God, especially today. Because the darker the days morally and spiritually, the more committed God's servants need to be. Because this is not a time for weak believers who offer weak, watered-down messages out of compromised lives. This is a time for us to stand like John against the tide of the world, against all the, the prevailing opinions and attitudes that are contrary to God, where everyone is doing whatever seems right in their own eyes, and we stand up and say, no, it's not okay to do whatever, the, whatever you think is right. It's, the way to live is to do what God says is right. So the darker the day spiritually and morally, the more we need to be Nazarites, those who manifest the highest level of spiritual devotion to God. Look, John was a lamp burning, as we've already said. He was a light shining in the darkness. He was a voice in the wilderness crying out to the lost of his day to get right with God before it's too late. John was a man sent from God to preach good news to a lost and dying world, just like we have been sent by God to do the same. It's called the Great Commission, right? Where we are to go into all the world and preach the good news to everybody. And we are to be light. We are to be a voice crying. We are to be a finger pointing. We are to be like John. We have an incredible ministry. Jesus Christ is coming back soon. We are the heralds of his second coming. I'll end with this. There was another man who was called to be a Nazarite for life from his mother's womb. Do you remember his name? Samson. Very good. Samson. Did Samson's life reflect the highest level of spiritual devotion to God? No. No. He was a Nazarite, but he lived his life pretty much to satisfy his own carnal, selfish desires. And you can read how his life ended. A wasted life. A life that started with so much promise. He had so much power. He could have gone down in the history of God's people as one of the true mighty men of valor. But he never conquered his physical passion. I don't even think he tried. And so he had the title of Nazarite, but the lifestyle of a reprobate. And there's a lot of Christians who have the title, but they're just not living the life. And you know what? God doesn't want your life to go down in the history of the church as one that was wasted. Because every one of us have the same power upon our lives that Samson had and John had upon his. The Spirit of God is in us because we're people of God, children of God. But it's our choice. Are we going to choose to live like Samson and waste our lives for God? Or are we going to choose to live like John the Baptist, a man totally sold out for God, focused on the ministry God called him to? One that lived to hear the words of Jesus someday, well done, good and faithful servant. Next week we'll finish up by looking at that third aspect of his ministry, spending a little time on that one. John was confrontational. Apparently, he didn't read the book, How to Win Friends and Influence People. <laughs> we'll talk about that next time. Father, we thank you so much for your word. And for men and women in your word, Lord, who are an example to the rest of us of commitment, of those who stand against the darkness of their day.
Those who are a voice crying, a finger pointing, and a lamp burning. Father, give us burning hearts for you in these last days. Give us a heart, Lord, that says, I don't care if everyone else is doing it. I'm going to be faithful to my God. I'm going to stand against the evil. I'm going to be a light in the darkness. Give us grace, Father, in these last days to not worry about what people think about us, but only care about what you think about us and the way we live. We just thank you, Lord. Father, we ask you to teach us from this man's life and give us grace to the Lord to apply the way he lived into our lives for you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.